Hello, I'm Neil Skolnick, host of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the official 2020 Clinical Practice Guidelines endorsed by the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the American Academy of Neurology, and the American College of Rheumatology on the Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment of Lyme Disease. Lyme disease is a tick-borne infection caused by spiricates of the Borrelia burgdorferi species and transmitted to humans by the bite of the Ixodes tick. In North America, Lyme disease is found predominantly in three regions, the Northeastern states, from Virginia to Eastern Canada, the upper Midwest, particularly Wisconsin and Minnesota, and in Northern California. Clinical manifestations, we're not gonna go over in detail just for the sake of time, but they include a skin lesion at the side of the tick bite, disseminated disease with skin lesions that are far from the tick bite, a person can get neuropathy, meningitis, cardiac conduction abnormalities, and arthritis. Again, we're not going to emphasize those clinical manifestations, which we can all look up if we're not familiar with it. But today we're going to emphasize diagnosis and treatment. Joining us today is one of the members of the Guidelines Committee, Dr. Paul Auerter. Dr. Alwerter is a professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he serves as the clinical director of the Division of Infectious Disease. Paul, it is an absolute pleasure to have you joining us. Neil, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. You know, for over 25 years, I've had an interest and in run a Lyme disease clinic and Lyme disease studies, but I also uh, have a small primary care practice, which I think keeps me honest. And uh, uh, so I, I really uh, often get questions uh, from family, friends, my primary care patients, as well as one of the most common reasons for ID referral in our suburban clinic. You know, it really is, Paul, Lyme disease, because it presents many challenges, I, I think uh, has captured in some ways, not always the best way, the imagination of the public at large, but also presents very real diagnostic challenges for, uh, for physicians. Let's start by discussing something that can be confusing, which is diagnostic testing for Lyme disease. Can you give us an overview? Yeah. So, Neil, you you're, you make an excellent point. I sort of view Lyme disease as something that's both underdiagnosed, meaning it's missed when it should have been thought about, and overdiagnosed, mainly, as you mentioned, has captured a subset of alternative practitioners and advocacy groups that feel it explains many things that you and I in medicine know are more falling into syndromic problems, such as fatigue and pain and these sorts of things. But the diagnostic testing really rests in two arenas. First, do you have a compatible rash in somebody in an area where you know Lyme disease is endemic? So if you have an erythema migrans rash, and uh, this is a bullseye, but really it's not that central clearing that's so common. It's really that you have a pink ovoid, what we call a homogeneous rash. And if that's present um, and expanding, you can feel pretty comfortable. It's a uh, rash consistent with Lyme disease. You don't need to do any testing, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and if you're not sure, you can always have the patient come back in a day or two, and it should be expanding. And the 
rash probably is how most Lyme disease is diagnosed. So Paul, can you talk a little bit about the two-part testing? Because I think this is sometimes confusing. It's certainly confusing for patients and therefore I think it's helpful to clarify it for us as clinicians. Yeah, so the, the two-tier test that's a uh, two-stage test has been around since 1995 and is really the gold standard because this bacteria is hard to culture it's actually not easy to PCR. So we're left on so-called indirect uh, tests, an antibody test to measure. Here's how I describe it to patients. The first test just checks for total antibodies. I think of it like the gas gauge in a car. Is it at empty, medium, or full? So if, if it's a beyond a certain point, it's considered positive, but because it's not that specific, we need to analyze it with immunoblots, which can detect minute amounts of antibodies. So typically, for example, what I say is if your gas gauge is positive, you know, you'll want to figure out what you have in your gas tank. You ask the chemist to analyze it. And he says, you have gasoline. And so we have immunoblots, an IgG and an IgM, and we should probably talk about some of the uh, uh, pitfalls with those because that's a very common diagnostic problem. But if you um, satisfy both the first and the second tier, uh, then uh, you need to have it in a compatible clinical presentation, right? Not someone that just has fatigue, not someone that you know has some obscure problem, but something that falls into the range of compatible diagnoses. Now, Paul, you mentioned pitfalls. Can you expand on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah. So let me talk about some scenarios. First is people bypass that first stage. That's sort of like saying your car ran out of gas. You've got a siphon into the gas tank. You've got two drops of gas. You give it to a chemist and it says, you got gasoline, your car can go. But, but the reality is you have minute amount of antibodies on the Western blot. You don't have measurable antibodies, meaning the body's not really substantially reacting to something. And it could have been they were infected with Lyme disease years ago. It's no longer active, but that's one problem that I see. People uh, bypass or order both tests, which some commercial labs allow. Uh, so you're not getting the standard algorithm, which is an EIA with reflexed immunoblot. Uh, the other is that people will say, if you have any bands, that means you have Lyme disease, and that's patently false. You need two out of three bands for the IgM test and five out of 10 for the IgG test to satisfy. The last one is the IgM test is notoriously bad on its own. So it can have high rates of false positivity if you apply it non-specifically. So the CDC specifically says you should only use that test if you have less than 30 days of symptoms. What I see, my most common reason for consultation is someone has a positive IgM Western blot and they've had five years of symptoms. Hmm. And, you know, and, it's, yeah, go. And please. then that, you know, what, that's an easy one because you look at the whole uh, surveillance and they should have mounted IgG antibodies, right? Uh, if they've had five years of untreated Lyme disease, right? That's a great point. And that's probably, I think the single most important thing for us to be aware of, at least in primary care, is the limited uh, specificity of, of the tests and that we, as you said, but to reemphasize, need to think about using them in the right clinical situation. And when we do that, then they have good predictive value. 
Right. I, you know, I, I think if it's negative, it's very helpful to reassure a patient who has two years of fatigue that it's not Lyme disease. The problem is you've opened the genie's box. You're using the test in a nonspecific situation. And if it's positive, as they used to say on I Love Lucy, there's a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> very good. Let's, let's move on now from testing in general. And I'll just say when we think about... Um, Acquisition of Lyme disease, we always talk about preventing tick bites. That's, we're not gonna spend a lot of time there. That's wearing long sleeves, long, you know, long pants, using DEET where, when you can. A question that comes up though, uh, in practice is the place of antibiotic prophylaxis. When someone calls and says, I had a tick bite, how should we be approaching that? Yeah. So Neil, this is where I think there's a lot of misconceptions and I think our guidelines do an excellent job of clarifying it, but it's really far away what I would say from what people tend to do in practice. So studies have shown that if you have a tick bite within 72 hours and it's identified as an exodi scapularis tick bite and it's been attached, the tick is engorged, that if you give a single dose of doxycycline, you can markedly reduce your chance of developing uh, Lyme disease. The problem is, in reality, people will call and say, I had a tick bite. There's no tick identification. Also, it's not easy to identify ticks. It can be confusing. And even if you ask someone to bring a tick in, studies have done this, 30 to 40% of the time, it's not a tick. It's a piece of vegetal matter. It's a twig, a piece of a twig. There's all, I mean, look, I'm in, of the age, my eyesight's failing. I don't know what I can see, you know, <laughs> anymore without a magnifying glass. So right. um, there's a lot of misidentification, but, but people are very anxious. And typically uh, you, you want to know that ticks are, have high rates of Borrelia burgdorferi infection. And that's definitely very variable. If you're on Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard, you know, <laughs> there's little doubt that if you had a tick bite attached for a while, you'd want to prophylax. Now, if you're in, you know, Eastern Virginia, where there's not a lot of Lyme disease, you know, your payoff for giving doxycycline may not be high. Uh, you know, there's side effects to the 200 milligram dose. Uh, yeah. and, and, and many times, I think people are trying to decide whether to give the patient Valium or doxycycline. <laughs> Yeah, I, I tend in the office, because this comes up a lot, we're in a Lyme disease endemic area. Uh, it is a quick shared decision-making approach. I uh, can't spend a long time on it, but here's what right. our options are, and then move and, forward. And, and this is the really, it's the failing in the sense of what the study shows is, is, is effective, but not practical in clinical yeah. practice, to be honest. Yeah. Now let's move on to when a patient presents after they've had a tick bite, uh, is there any value in checking a blood test for Lyme disease at that point instead of just prophylaxis? Right. So there's no reason to check blood tests at the time of the tick bite for two reasons. First, if it is positive, it's not from the tick bite, it's from something in the past, right? And and uh, presumably the, some, someone doesn't have symptoms of Lyme disease, they just have a tick bite. The second is it does take weeks to develop a sufficient immune response. And most tick bites do not cause Lyme disease. So we don't recommend 
antibody testing routinely for a tick bite. We also don't recommend testing the tick for in, uh, whether there's infection there because you can send the tick off to the lab and do a PCR. The, the problem is the tick, it's like PCR in your stool. You're going to find a lot of stuff there. It may not be relevant mm. and it's going to take a week to come back and at which point you're, you're past the opportunity for prophylaxis. Right. So we recommend don't test the tick, don't test the human. That makes a lot of sense. Now, moving on with the clinical evolution of disease, how about an EM rash when someone presents? And I think you already gave us a sense of the answer when you said it takes weeks for the antibodies to develop. But when someone presents with an EM rash, how do you approach that? Yeah. So if, if you feel comfortable saying it's an erythema migrans rash, you don't need to do any testing in part because typically 40 to 60% of blood tested at that time will be zero negative. Um, so if you think it satisfies criteria, A, it's a reportable illness, and two, you can go ahead and treat uh, with an antibiotic, and we can talk about the treatment recommendations. Uh, this is the most common presentation. I will say a number of rashes that probably aren't Lyme disease get treated, cellulitis, ringworm, those sorts of things, uh, spider bites. But on the other hand, I've seen Lyme disease missed because people are diagnosing spider bites, ringworm, and cellulitis. So, yeah. you know, it is something that uh, it's hard to be 100% on, but there are very characteristic rashes and there are great pictures on the CDC website if you're not familiar, especially since the Lyme disease geographic range is expanding. So people in Ohio may not have seen Lyme disease, but yeah. now it's coming to a theater near you. That, that's really a great point. And that, that is an excellent website. And what's really worthwhile about looking at a lot of pictures, if you're in a Lyme disease endemic area, you realize they're not all classic bullseye lesions. That's what the uh, articles sometimes talk about them as, but as you said, there's a range that can look like a, a spider bite with an eroded middle or an expansive area. Yeah, they can be very uh, dusky or even necrotic at the punctum, probably from a vigorous innate immune response. And the other thing, Neil, I'll mention is um, what people sort of miss are what you mentioned earlier, the multiple erythema migrans. People can have five, 10, 20, 30 spots. They're usually lighter, not as prominent as a primary spot, but people will call that a viral rash. They'll call it erythema multiforme, even though the lesions are much bigger than uh, erythema multiforme spots. So, um, and then if you're in a Lyme endemic area with a fever and, and, and polka dots, you know, you better be thinking Lyme disease, but a lot of times people don't consider it. Hey, I'm so glad you mentioned that. We actually years ago had a resident who had uh, disseminated Lyme disease. One of the smartest people I know did not recognize it, incredibly fatigued. And then, uh, you know, I think that's one of the under-recognized attributes of Lyme disease. People are aware of the arthritis. They're aware of the Bell's palsy, you know, the facial palsy. They know the single bullseye, uh, but the disseminated Lyme aspects sometimes are forgotten. Moving on to treatment for that person presenting with an EM rash, she decides an EM rash, uh, what is recommended for treatment and how long do you treat for it? 
Yeah, so there was a very good study done by Gary Wormser in upstate in Westchester County. And uh, basically, 10 days of doxycycline works as well as longer regimen. So I prescribe 10 days of doxycycline. That's now the recommendation. Amoxicillin, if you someone shouldn't take doxycycline, you're worried about photosensitivity, GI upset, and so on. Um, that is still 14 days of amoxicillin because uh, a shorter regimen hasn't been studied. You know, this is not a hard bacteria to kill. Um, mm. I think there's a lot of internet lore that it's tough to kill, but it's really not. Uh, the, the organisms remain uniformly susceptible to these antibiotics. Excellent. How about doxy in children? Yeah, so this is new. Uh, so the uh, Red Book, if you're familiar with the pediatric uh, mm -hmm. reference source, also the American Academy of Family Practitioners, uh, also the American Academy of Pediatrics, all recommend now that short course doxycycline is not dangerous under the age of eight. It does not seem to cause dental staining for short courses. Uh, some small studies done in, in different countries have suggested that. So if you have someone that you're suspecting Rocky Mountain spotted fever or you know uh, any of the other tick-borne illnesses, doxycycline is fine to give for children under eight. Now, regular old-fashioned tetracycline is still problematic, but the FDA has a universal tetracycline warning based on old-fashioned oral tetracycline that's still on all the labels for minocycline, doxycycline, but um, certainly uh, the CDC and all the organizations I just mentioned said you can give it to kids. That's helpful to know. Let's move on now to uh, neurologic disease. Can you talk to us for a few minutes about perhaps some manifestations as well as the recommended testing strategy? Sure. So neuroborreliosis um, uh, can come in a number of flavors. The most common is a cranial nerve seven palsy um, that can even be bilateral. The only other disease that causes bilateral uh, simultaneous uh, facial nerve palsies is sarcoidosis. So it's a small menu if you see it bilaterally. Uh, estimates from a Long Island study in the 90s said a quarter of Bell's palsy on Long Island were due to Lyme disease, okay? Wow. Of course, it's going to be more during the spring and summer and so on. Other cranial nerves can be involved, including uh, hearing loss, uh, ocular palsies, but they're much less common. Uh, two other conditions that I think deserve special mention are aseptic meningitis, so people can get fever and headache part of disseminated infection. And then the third would be radiculitis. I've had patients who have had their gallbladders taken out, uh, who um, were thought to have sciatica, because this can cause a radiculoneuritis, and there's no rash. Um, so usually you'll be thinking about uh, zoster sine herpeticum, you know, zoster without the rash, or Lyme disease is part of a differential of a, a radiculopathic type pain that's new. And if you're in a Lyme disease area, give strong consideration for checking a Lyme serology. Now, <clears throat> we should probably just talk briefly about harder to diagnose uh, and much more rare neurologic manifestations. Okay. So I don't know if this comes up. So here's a few, uh, ALS, MS, Parkinson's disease, dementia, should you check for Lyme disease? The answer is no. I think patients bring it up, 
but it's a bit of a fool's errand because again, if you do have a positivity, it's unlikely to be correlated at all with the disease. However, rarely uh, people can have late Lyme disease that causes problems in the brain Maybe with peripheral neuropathy, but that's controversial. A lot of those studies were when our Lyme disease tests were much less reliable in the 70s and 80s. Hmm. Uh, but that's where you might have to do a spinal tap. Okay. So it really, again, is a lot about the clinical setting and deciding about the appropriate right. testing. Yeah. And you're going to be doing, if there's not a reliable uh, history or uh, erythema migraines rash with the neurologic a disease, then you're going to be resting on serology like we talked about early on. Makes sense. And then antibiotic treatment for neurologic manifestations? Yeah, it depends. Um, you know, if you think you have someone um, there, we usually use oral therapy. There are some very excellent studies from Europe that show that oral doxycycline is equivalent to ceftriaxone for uh, neuroborreliosis. Now, we don't have equivalent studies in the United States, but there's no reason to really suspect it would be different. So my, I rarely use intravenous therapy. If you do decide to use intravenous therapy, two weeks should be sufficient. Okay. And ceftriaxone is the typical agent. Makes sense. Now, when we're talking about Bell's palsy, typically steroids are on the map for treatment of Bell's palsy. Are they still on the map if the Bell's palsy is secondary to Lyme disease? Yeah, um, at least with available information so far, um, there's not enough information one way or another. So our guideline is agnostic on this. Um, that's probably all I can say right okay. now. But th but that's helpful. That. So there's not there's not a clear don't. It doesn't clearly interfere with treatment, but there isn't a recommendation that one should use steroids. Is the way Correct. to think about it. Uh, and and the other th important point to make, Neil, as far as we know, antibiotics don't really speed resolution of the facial palsy. The main role of the antibiotic at that time for Lyme related facial palsy is to prevent future complications. So you're killing the infection so you de don't develop Lyme arthritis or another problem down the road. Which leads us to Lyme arthritis. And uh, it clearly is a very important manifestation of Lyme disease. We don't have time to cover it in depth, but are there important high points that you want to cover about Lyme arthritis for our audience? Yeah, I think there are a couple, especially if you're in a, a setting where you see both children and adults but it's actually a bit different. Adolescents and adults typically will have a swollen knee uh, that's painful, but not particularly, you know, they otherwise feel okay. It's usually just a painful swollen knee that's not terribly hot. Children under 10 can behave more like a septic arthritis, especially at the hip. And there have been some nice studies out of Boston in this regard. So people, you know, the kids uh, have high fever, they have high inflammatory markers and so on. That's not how adolescents and adults tend to present at all. So it, there is a, a real difference for Lyme arthritis. Also, adolescent um, adult Lyme arthritis is late. It can probably develop weeks to months after acquisition, whereas in the kids under 10, you tend to see it early. Uh, earlier after a tick bite. Very helpful. Another question that, that comes up is about babesiosis, which is a parasite that is a tick-borne illness. Um, when should we think about it? It can co-infect with Lyme disease. 
in what setting do we think about that? Yeah, Neil, these are uh, good points and on a lot of patients' minds because it's possible uh, to get more than one tick-borne infection from a black-legged uh, tick bite. Uh, babesiosis is the one that's probably most concerning, uh, especially in someone that doesn't have a spleen or is immunocompromised. And how I think of it is if you're treating Lyme disease and the person's not getting better in a day or two, let's start thinking about Babesia because amoxicillin and doxycycline do not affect this parasite, which acts a lot like malaria. Uh, there are other co-infections out there. There's gra human granulocytic anaplasmosis. Uh, there's two other Borrelia and there's also Powassan virus. But the two most common co-infections are Babesia and human granulocytic anaplasmosis. The last one, HGA, responds to doxycycline. So that's an easy twofer for uh, doxycycline. Excellent. There's still more we could talk about what we're about out of time. Uh, I refer our listeners to the full guidelines. We could talk about Lyme carditis, an important area, persistent arthritis. Uh, there's a lot of questions that, that uh, we're not going to touch on today. Any additional thoughts or final comments that, that you feel are important for our audience? Yeah, I, I think, uh, Neil, what's important is this is a very rich document that um, follows a grade format and is structured, the guidelines, to help address the common clinical questions that come up in practice. And that also includes patients that say, do I have Lyme disease because I feel tired? And that's, of course, a, a big area. Hopefully, we've touched on that a little bit. Uh, but there's often very common patient-generated requests. I think it's best that you as healthcare professionals try to help the patient understand the limitations of the test and the appropriate time for testing. Paul, I, th I think we covered in a short amount of time an incredible amount of information in, in a really concise and usable way. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Neil, it's fun. And I uh, hope you all stay uh, tick-free and uh, enjoy the great outdoors. For questions and a more in-depth discussion of the recommendations, please go to a full version of the guidelines that is available at idsociety.org. I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick for the IDSA. Thank you for listening to us.